How we look at people, we don't understand the why behind why people are behaving the way they are. So like we see somebody walking down the street and they look weird. We just process it as like weird, dangerous or not dangerous. But the reality is, is sometimes if you give the people why you're behaving a certain way, it makes so much more sense. You're listening to Muscle Medicine, where we debunk the myths in the health and wellness world to bring you the latest updates in exercise, rehab, and nutrition from industry leaders. Join your host, Dr. Emily Kyberg, chiropractor and movement expert, as she brings you simple, actionable tips to reach your fullest potential. All right, so we are sitting down today with Blake Eastman for Muscle Medicine Podcast. We met how many years ago? Three years ago? Three or four. Yeah. yeah. And you were actually a patient. I was a patient referred by Ari. Nick Sonnenberg. Nick. Nick. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And he was like, you just go see Emily. She'll fix you. Yeah. And you fixed me. <laughs> <laughs> so, and when we were working together, I didn't know really much about your background. You know, I kind of got like little tidbits here and there. And can you just give us like a glimpse of like past history of Blake Eastman? <laughs> yeah. Uh, Long story short, when I was 17, I saw a movie called Rounders. And at that time, I um, wanted to get a JD MBA and go into mergers and acquisitions. And I had this whole plan of I was going to play poker and then use that money to pay off my degree. So I was in school and I was a very serious student to make my sort of application look good. And I finished school very quickly and I started teaching psychology at Sydney University. And then before I was actually going to go into Law school, I realized that I was making enough money playing poker that I stuck with poker. And then I started two companies, uh, School of Cards, which was the first brick and mortar poker school in the country. And then the Nonverbal Group, which is a behavioral research company in New York City where we do large scale studies on human behavior. And to distill it down, I feel it would be you are a specialist or an expert in reading body language, mm-hmm. which translates into behavior. Yeah, it's uh, basically the perception around behavior. So, like, uh, one of the first things that happened uh, when I came in here, as you were saying, when you walk on the street, you see someone like, oh, that person has this problem. And that person has like an issue with their neck based on how they were holding themselves. I'll do something very similar, but from a communication style. So like that person probably doesn't have the ability to connect with their team. That person probably gets perceived as a little bit cold or aloof, or that person is too friendly and people don't take them seriously. So it's it's a similar diagnostic sort of approach to uh, communication. Yeah. So on the podcast, we talk so much about how to rehab, train, feed the muscle. Mm -hmm. But I think this is such an interesting component of how we hold ourselves and how we are physically interacting with another person as just another way of muscle memory and training. So can you give some examples of stuff that you've seen? So like big companies, corporations bring you in to kind of problem solve like whatever, the higher up is having a hard time managing the team and it might be because of their communication style, mm. right? Can you just give us like a couple oh, examples yeah. or glimpses just so we can like really so tactilely on, feel it? <laughs> so on this one, I was at a company, there was probably like I don't know, 18 people in the room and one person, everybody, it was a very cohesive unit, but one person seems relatively disconnected from the group. So I walked up to him and I said, uh, you're a CrossFitter, right? And he started, he started laughing at me. And he was like, yeah, I am. And he's just genuine and authentic. And I was like, did you check out like Mobility Wad recently from K-Star? And he's like, I did. And at the time, Kelly had done something about posture. And this guy throughout the entire, like, I don't know, it must've been 28 hour training, had the most perfect posture ever. 
So he was like sitting back, super like upright. Or, super upright, like, you know, just very powerful, very positioned. But the problem was, was while other people were having conversations where they were like engaging and looking more casual, he was always upright. And when you look at that, <laughs> like in like the distribution of the room, he seemed to be the most off-putting, most reserved, most careful, most all that. And it was fascinating because technically he probably had the best mechanics and he's probably not going to go home with a bad back, but the perception of the room was a lot different towards him and he had no idea. So like the, the changes that we make have massive impact. Or another example is like, I've worked with executives that when they do 360 examinations, like the whole team reviews you, they get consistently like cold, they're not open, they don't give constructive feedback. And then I'll have a conversation with this person and it'll be something like, you know, when they were 12, dad said, men don't smile in business. And from mm. that moment, they don't smile. And our hack is to use video. So we record everything so that we show people what exactly they look like. And, you know, I've worked with some interesting and tough people over the years. And video has always been my like most powerful tool because they can't really, can't argue with me. So I started doing this very young. I was like 24, 25. And they'd be like, oh, who are you? I'd be like, press play. I'm like, if you want to look like this, like I'll leave. It's no problem. And they'd be like, oh, okay. Like, what are we doing here? And it's just changing sort of patterns of behavior and using video to expedite that. So in the first example with a guy who was super upright, too much supple leopard, mm -hmm. um, did you recognize the disconnect because you're an expert or did like just the whole room feel like disconnected from him? Well, so, sort of how I view people is when you, when you talk to someone, you're viewing that person's behavior through your own lens, through your own filters of society. When I look at people, I try to take an evaluative approach where I'm looking at through like how 10 different people would approach it. So like if this is a room full of CrossFitters, they would view that behavior a lot differently and it wouldn't be weird, but in that room, it's a little bit different. And then you start to see just little micro things that sort of prove it. And then what I do is I use the video for validation, right? So like I go back instead of being biased and being like, oh, he's definitely doing this. I'll pick, I'll look at the video sample and I'll find the moments where you're like, you see this, see this, see this, this. And then it becomes really apparent once you actually have that historical uh, footage. It's like a video doesn't lie. That's my favorite term. Doesn't yeah. lie. Like yeah. it's just, that's what you look like. So when you were giving feedback to the guy that was super upright, what was some of the suggestions? Was it oh, like he was to lean in or was it like? Yeah, he was immediately receptive to it. Oh, he was like, oh my God, I didn't even think about that. And honestly, when I said that to him, it completely shifted. So he became a little bit, he announced it to the group and the group laughed. And then he became, <laughs> and they all know him because he's like a former Marine. Like they just think uh, that's who he is. Right. But the reality is he's way more warm and just friendly, but his his behavior just dictated that way. And then he was, he was fine. I mean, he still... I don't know if posturally he screwed himself, <laughs> but he looked <laughs> like pretty. Neck pain now. <laughs> yeah, no, he he looked pretty attentive. He 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 changed, and everybody understood. And also, like the big thing is, so how we look at people, we don't understand the why behind why people are behaving the way they are. So, like we see somebody walking down the street and they look weird, we just process it as like weird, dangerous or not dangerous. But the reality is, is sometimes if you give the people why you're behaving a certain way, it makes so much more sense. So like some people, if someone says like, I need to stand up, my back is really bad. And everybody in the room knows that they don't look at you like, okay, that's that weirdo sitting in the back, standing in the back room when everyone's <laughs> right. sitting it. So people are afraid to give the why, but giving the why sort of just makes it more, it's just easier for everyone. So we, we, pra we practice that. And a lot of what we do is it's interesting. I don't really, sometimes I don't teach anything. I remove. So presentation, right? For example. So like a lot of presentations will, uh, coaching will start off with like, hand movement and postures. And this is how you should say, I don't do any of that stuff. All I do is I try to strip them down to 
they're their most comfortable, almost like when they're talking to a, a friend and seeing how powerful they are in that moment. And that's what we work on because most people have these concepts of themselves of how they should behave, how they should act, what they should look like. And that's what creates the disconnect. So how does um, someone's physical posturing affect maybe a team? I mean, you gave the example of like the guy that's like super upright, but um, you know, maybe someone that's the opposite that kind of has like, they look like they sit all day, they're hunched, they're rounded forward, could be interpreted as like depressed or, you know, kind of down. How do you uh, start to remove things to kind of, it sounds like to bring out their true nature when they're interacting with a team? Well, sometimes get them to quit. So that's like- Like literally quit their job? Yeah. Like there's <laughs> there's been times where like I've been consulting and I've been like, listen, I know you can't say anything, but just shake your head. It's like, you hate this job. And they're like, yeah. I'm like, you want to leave? Yeah. Like nothing I'm going to say or do is going to fix it. Right. And they're like, yeah. Like sometimes oh. we have that issue, right? Yeah. Like, And there's only a certain extent to which you could fake things. Mm-hmm. There's also like the power of reframing, which is what we are constantly doing. Like, like People need to understand that your thoughts and your own feelings dictate and shape your behaviors, right? So- I'll send people to sort of work on what they're actually thinking about and sort of remap their perspective in a specific issue. Sometimes I'll change it to more challenges. Sometimes I'll work out the incentive structure with the company to incentivize the people more. But like, I'll be honest, I mean, I don't care anymore. I I used to do a lot of consulting uh, and I stopped because just companies really just, they say they care, they don't really care. They just don't. Like, you know, I've, I've come in and I'm like, listen, they do a weekend class and you write a whole prescription of what they should be doing and they don't do it. And like, I've changed my perspective to be, my goal is to get a person from point A to point B. And it's also my goal to choose the people that are going to come in at point A and get them to point B. Cause like people will say, Oh, you have to, that's my favorite cop out for like coaches. Like you have to do the exercises in the book. It's like, well, obviously, but like where, where's the motivational factor to get the person to do the exercise in the book. So a lot of our stuff is like six months, you know, four to eight month windows because it takes time to change behavior. That's why I used to see you do these classes, people walk in, they feel great and they walk out. It's like you, the stuff that you showed me, I don't know the complexity of it, but basically when my back hurts now, I just squeeze my butt as much as possible during the day <laughs> and it goes away. Like that's- The rehab exercises, yeah. yeah, I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm telling you, like, so Molly's always like, my girlfriend always joke. I was like, I need to do the exercise more. And like, it, for me, it all came from push-ups. I was doing a lot of push-ups. I lose my back slightly with them pushing up. And still when I do push-ups now, I'm like, my back's going, my back's going. And you just recalibrate. But it's not like here, it's fixed. Squeeze the tickets. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, it helps. Yeah. And we're in a culture right now that everybody wants like the, all right, so like, what can you give me right now? It's going to transform how people relate to me. And I'm like, nothing. Like, like <laughs> I have nothing for you. And there's simple hacks, right? Like there's simple things of like, Speaking with your hands, palms up is more of an appeal to like emotionality. Down is more factual. So you want to have the integration between up and down. And like, there's people that smile too much and we have to remove their smile time. But like a smile in itself is just so damn complex. Like some people say like walk into a room and smile. It's like bad advice because sometimes that person's anxious and then they like walk in with a weird smile and (laughs) then everybody's like, who's this weird person, right? So communication is way more elaborate, way more way deeper than how it sounds. And a lot of what you read about like body language and communication, it's just bull****. Like it really, really is. It's, so one of my favorite things, we had an article on our, on our website a long time ago. I think I took it down, but it, it said, I said why the 93% of communication thing is silly. Like people say, oh, 93% of communication is nonverbal. I wrote why it's silly and I make an argument, right? 
that was quoted in like 25 or 30 things saying that the nonverbal group said 93% of communication is nonverbal, meaning the writer didn't even read <laughs> what they quoted. And that's kind of the, the era we, we live in right now. Yeah. It's like, you know, you need a study, you need a this, you need a that. You yeah. don't even do real research. So how did you, I mean, you have a background in poker, which is mm-hmm. obviously a lot of like reading body language and facial expressions. How did you kind of take that world and translate it into nonverbal group? Nonverbal group was, okay, so this is basically what happened. It sounds weird because you think of poker and behavior and all that. When I was teaching and playing poker professionally, behavior had nothing to do with it. So I had my nonverbal group and I had school of cards. I was like, you know, poker is a game based on math and strategy. You develop ways of beating it. And then when we did the first real study, we started to see the value of behavior. So they only came together quite recently. Uh, I used to just keep them relatively separate, but I started both of those companies pretty close, like within a year of each other. I just basically over the past five years have dedicated myself to scaling our stuff and, and making it online. So I, I focused on poker, but now I'm going to start getting into nonverbal. So, and then you guys do a lot of research. Mm-hmm. I feel like sometimes behavior and body language can be very subjective. Mm-hmm. Like, how do you measure that kind of stuff? Can you talk about like uh, some of the studies? Nightmare. So like, uh, <laughs> So like, for example, our, we did a large study ever conducted on poker players and that produced a data set of 650,000 blinks. So we literally have teams in like the Philippines that will manually count every single time someone blinks, they'll like mark it. And then we'll create coding methodologies for how people move their hands. So like there's a difference between a speed and style and then we'll code it and then use put all that data in a database and look for inferences. It's, a, it's like a... Th- approach to research called grounding theory. So like a lot of research is hypothesis driven, meaning like, let's look for the relationship between this and this. We don't deal with that because it's biased and it's not good for what we do. So we just do this large scale study where we record as much behavior as possible. We come up with ways of coding and defining the behavior, and then we look for inferences and then we build theories and then we sort of test the theories. Uh, So that's uh, sort of our approach. Like if we work with doctors or something, we would record in a patient and doctor interaction, like thousands of them, and look for themes and similarities and things that work and don't work. But it's all about creating the most effective path for navigating a dynamic as opposed to shake someone's hand as soon as they walk in the room. But yeah, the, the coding of behavior, it's getting better. There's some software that we can automatically do the face now for the most part. So every single facial movement can be coded. There's a company called Noldis that has this thing called Face Reader that can do it. And then we're actually looking at other technologies such as like the Aura Ring and other things to take in uh, biofeedback stuff. Yeah. When Have you worked with any like physicians or practitioners? Yeah. Yeah. Physicians are the worst. (laughs) Worse than the guy that doesn't smile? Oh my God. So, so how are they the worst? Because I think so, it's, we have a lot of people who are like PTs, chiros, trainers that listen to the podcast. PT, chiros, trainers tend to be better than physicians, in my opinion. So this is the thing. I've worked in and out of hospitals in New York. I've worked. Doctors have this weird sort of uh, listening or filter or something. that It takes me a lot more work to convince them what I'm saying is valuable. And usually, like I, like I spoke to a room full of like 75 doctors at a hospital and like I have to go a lot harder than I normally do. But once they get it, they really get it. And it's interesting because like doctors, you have like the bell curve distribution of like, eh, it's not that useful. It's not this, but then you've got people that really need to work on it. And we have, and you got people that, 
like are amazing at it and just want to develop their skills. But the more interesting thing about doctors is when they, when they leave their practice. So their effectiveness is really good in their practice because they have their little coat and they have their degree, but then they have problems in other interpersonal relationships and in dating and stuff like that. So I've worked, yeah, I've worked with a lot of doctors. I actually had my own doctor's poker night in New York City where I was the only not MD. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. So that was a thing that we used to run out of the office. Not, so not right now because I'm not in New York, but yeah. like, yeah, we used to get a bunch of doctors together and, um, and do that. And then, and then, you know, I think this podcast is a great example of like medicine and human health is very tricky. Right. And, oh. you know, it's not, I was at a doctor's appointment and they told me to drink Gatorade for something. And I was like, why would I drink Gatorade? Ugh. Like, but it's like, that's <laughs> not in their scope of their specialty. Like right. that's not what they're designed to do. And it is interesting. I think this, this is the ultimate test. Okay. For anybody listening, if you're a practitioner, one of the best tests is the annoying patient test. So it's basically how can you deal with like the annoying patient, right? The person that's like, well, did you read the NIH study on WebMD last night? Or did you, <laughs> uh, have you heard about this? Or, and it's just how you reposition, reshape, redirect their energy to something that's more productive. Because usually the people that I've worked that are not the most effective are like very dismissive, very, I'm this, you're that. And the interaction is not the best. And the reason why I work with doctors because they get sued at a higher rate when they can't deal with that. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes I wonder, especially for the, the medical professionals that have done the residency, the fellowship, the, you know, multiple fellowships, that maybe they have just been in training for so long that to develop their adult life of interacting, yeah. like maybe it's like, it's been pushed back till, you know, late thirties, early forties for when they actually get out. Yeah. Yeah. No. I, I and yeah, they're, they're in training. They're also in a dynamic where they're the boss a lot of the time, yeah. which is almost a problem for me because I was teaching from, for my whole life. And I always found like, I'm always a teacher, like for 40 or 50 hours a week, I'm a teacher. Like when do I get to be the student? And it like affects you in a certain way. And yeah, it's just something that people don't really, like we go to the gym to work out. Like we work on our health. We work on all these aspects of our life, but people don't really work on their communication. It's not something you'd like diligently look at. And a lot of problems in life and a lot of issues are stemming from- that. Yeah. So people who feel like maybe they innately inherently don't communicate well, or maybe don't even connect well, mm -hmm. or maybe they just self-label themselves as like an introvert. Mm -hmm. What are some tips that you could give them that could be actionable, potentially easy yeah. <laughs> to just be a better communicator or be able to just connect with the person that's in front of them? So it's so, it's so complex in the sense that I think that there's a lot of stuff underneath that prevents people from connecting with one another. One of the best things is just challenges, I believe are very useful. So I used to have a challenge for people that were like struggling with assertion. I would basically make them negotiate one thing every day and track it in a spreadsheet. So every single day you had to negotiate one thing. So like if you went to the store and something was like a dollar fifty, you'd have to get it down to like a dollar. <laughs> <laughs> right. And what was so interesting is for some of my clients, like watching them do this, like you saw measurable anxiety, like at a high level, just to ask some random stranger for 25 cents off. I feel a little slightly anxious yeah, to yeah, myself yeah. doing that. Yeah. And the thing is, is once you start doing it, it becomes a little bit of a game. You start to push your comfort zone and it starts to work. And it's so weird because with a lot of this communication stuff, if I give some piece of advice right now, so like push your comfort zone is the best piece of advice, right? Everybody always says that. But with communication and with people that are struggling with like anxiety or certain social skills, 
if they push their comfort zone too quickly and they get burned, it validates their story. So it's, it's one of the reasons why you have to take a better handholding approach with some of this stuff and not just be like, go out there and be more social. Like that advice is not usually not good because this is a skill set thing also. Like it's people will react to you in a weird way. Like I have clients that like, yeah, you keep doing that and you're going to re- reaffirm your theory that people don't like you because you're weird and creepy and it's not nothing. You're not, I mean, you're coming across as weird and creepy. Right, you know right. what I mean? Like it's, it's just the reality of the situation. So, but I, I like challenges. Um, I like things that I like improv. I think that's a great way of getting out of yourself. Uh, I like certain self-development stuff like landmark education, uh, like Tony Robbins, like anything that really looks deep at your life, I think is going to be, you'll see things that sort of come up. Yeah. And then also, you know, not to exercise helps. Like physical exercise. Yeah, yeah. it just helps with, uh, I've always been a big fan of like, especially for men, some sort of uh, martial arts or some sort of fighting or boxing, like understanding how to handle yourself can give you a confidence boost. And it just, you just feel better like once you start to process it. But the reality is it's work. It takes like anything else, like it takes work to look why you are the way that you are and then to re-engineer it in a way that makes the most sense for what you need to do. But the cool thing is you have 100% control of this. So it's like introverts, introversion, extroversion is another thing that drives me nuts. Just because like, it's just a personality inventories. I guess my background was just psychometrics and test construction. It's like personality inventories are great. Like they're, they're, they're a fast way of effectively assessing and getting an understanding of person. But people love labels. I mean like a Myers-Briggs or a Colby or a, like that? Yeah, like they're okay. Like Myers-Briggs and Colby, like they're useful tools. But people will take the tool and then like they'll they'll live that they can't change at all. That they, they I'm an INFJ, Blake. So just want you to let you know that before we work together. I'm like okay, <laughs> like. And then the problem is once you once you live a life that is so labeled, everything fits into the story of the label, and it's very difficult to grow and it's very difficult to change. I think they're good, and but I do think that they're bad. So for example, I had a I had a client. Uh, it was a class. It was like 50 people in that class. It was I think it was a dating workshop. I must have done like six years ago. And this guy raises his hand. And he goes. I am an engineer. The parts of my brain that are dedicated towards social interactions have been dedicated towards engineering. That's why I'm so good at an engineer. And that's why I'm not good dating. And I, I, I said, okay, I said, how long have you been, how long have you known this? And he's like, I've known this for the past 20 years. I'm like, that's exactly why you're bad at dating. Cause you've just chosen right then and there that this is not, I'm not good at this. And you know, it's just like the growth mindset stuff. I mean, it's talked about so much now, but it's, it's, essential. Like you need to be able to feel like you can change. And I think personality is way more adaptive than people ever thought. Like, you know, you're taught and you go through psychology, it's like a, you're taught personality doesn't change that much. I don't agree with that. Why do you think people like to compartmentalize themselves and really, you know, resonate with like a certain label? It's identity, right? Like it, it feels great. Like everything's like that in our culture. Like we can make a, a, a book, The Cup, how to understand the science of half glass full and half half empty to change your life and your love. Like we live in that sort of culture that takes like research that is like not really anything. And, but people want to feel a part of something. So it feels great when it's like, finally, they got me. Like they got me. So I used to to do this thing with, anybody listens to horoscopes here. So I used to do this thing with the horoscopes. And uh, in my class when I was teaching psychology, I used to, say like, who believes in this sort of methodology or whatever. And then I would say, okay, great. Like, what are you? And, and she'd say like, I'm a, 
like Pisces or a Capricorn <laughs> or whatever. I'd be like, okay, great. I'm going to read you the thing of the thing. Just tell me if it's you. And I would read another another thing. So I'd read like Libra or something like that, right? And they would be like, yeah, that that, that sounds like me. That kind of sounds like, yeah, that's me. That's me. And the reality is like, it's it's a fine method. Like there's nothing wrong with doing that kind of thing, right? Like there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with it. I, if you use horoscopes or whatever to help ground certain aspects of who you are, but it's a problem when you're like, listen, I am a Pisces. So that's why I am the way I am. And I'm never going to change. That's the only time I have a problem with it. Like, when it's in a fixed mindset. Yeah, yeah. Like I had some woman walk up to me at the end of the nonverbal class and she walks right up to me and she literally like put her hands around my face and she says, you have an incredible aura. And I was like, okay. And she said like, I'm a healer and I'm all these things. And I'm like, okay, great. Like, I, what does that mean? I, she didn't really have an answer. And she left and the whole room said to me like, Blake, what do you think about that? And I was like, listen, I don't, I don't know. First of all, I don't understand the, maybe there's people out there that can read auras or whatever, but I felt that she truly believed it. Right. And it, there's a powerful effect to placebo. I mean, and I used to be like, show me the data, show me the science. Like, <laughs> like I used to be like that for a long time. Now I'm very like, what, what works for you works for you. As long as you don't really fall into the label and you feel like it's helping, it's helping. Like there we go. Yeah. You know? Have you noticed, because you've been traveling for the past two years, mm -hmm. like all over the world. Yeah. Have you, because obviously different cultures have different body languages. Oh, like, yeah. So like, for example, you went to Bali. Yeah. And, you know, having been in Bali multiple times as well, it's like the communication is very passive. Uh -huh. And then if it does get aggressive, it's passive aggressive. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's always kind of like talking around something. Like mm -hmm. just from your travels, have you... Yeah, I mean, you see a lot you of like, whoa, I never even You see thought. a lot of stuff. Like so far Bali's been my favorite, like been my favorite place for the people. Yeah. So the people have been they're just incredible. Like the way they light up and just yeah, there's just something special about them. I, I have this thing called the Balinese insider smile. <laughs> and it's basically they do this thing where they smile and then they raise their eyebrows up and down. <laughs> so like our one of our tour guides was talking about like this girl and he he was like yeah, she's blonde and from California. And then he like started raising his eyebrows up and down. And and then I was like, oh, that's interesting. And then I started seeing everybody doing this. Like we gave you free coffee and then their eyes went <laughs> up and down. And it was like cool to see that cultural connection. And also just noticing like the morphology and the shift of the smiles, very genuine in Bali. It's like interesting. Like we, we went from Bali to Ho Chi Minh city and like the city, it's like none of that. Like there's not a single person smiling at me ever. <laughs> the whole city. Yeah, and it's just like, there's just not the, not the, culture yeah, there. Yeah. Um, and like Thailand also has been a lot like that. It's, it's fascinating to see the cultural differences. We spent some time in like in Europe, in um, like Budapest and like learned the history. You need context. So you need really need to understand the full context of a culture before you start making assessments and sort of, there is a very like, ethno, like Amerocentric way of job. Like they're not doing X or Y and it's the reality is like when you understand their context, you're like, oh, okay, that makes a lot more sense than what we're doing, you know? Yeah. So it, it's been fascinating. Um, I definitely observe it differently. I definitely, my biggest travel hack is I always look at people. Like, so when we're buying something, so I always say like, they say, this is your first time. I say, no, I've been here 12 times. That's like always what I say. So cab drivers, anything. And then like, if somebody says a price, I'll look at them and be like, like, like that. come on, like come on, like come on, and then okay, 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 and then that's just my first method of behavioral haggling. I mean, in some cultures, if you don't haggle, they're like, 
Yeah, it's like we, it's like weird. It's like <laughs> yeah. game to them. It's like yeah. a, a style. I, I personally don't like it. I just want whatever. Yeah. Just give it to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You've mentioned the smile a couple times. Mm. Can you break down? Because you were saying there's lots of different smiles. Yeah. Can you just kind of give us some insight into that? So yeah, like the the more old school way of looking at a smile is like they talk about a smile with your eyes is genuine, right? So like there's Smize. like- Eyes. Yeah. <laughs> five defining criteria, like number one, upward turning of the mouth, opening of the mouth, raising of the cheeks, the wrinkles and folds to the left and right in the eyes and the wrinkles and folds to the below the eyes. So like people with a high accuracy can determine just based on eyes if someone's smiling or not, right? And while that is true and that is valuable, a certain percentage of people can fake that. But also what's more important is the timing of a smile. So like- Real smiles, genuine smiles, they have like this weird, it's kind of hard to describe actually, but like when you watch it on a video, the morphology is not so quick. It's not like someone's just like sitting there and then all of a sudden they smile. Like it subtly builds, it opens up, it stays there for two seconds and then it goes away. Like it's, and that is the genuine, true smile. And a lot of people, I use this, I have a statement that smiles are the duct tape of social interaction because people like, when they don't like someone, they smile. When they're when they feel uncomfortable, they sometimes smile. When they're not that interested, they smile. And it's like you can spot real smile from fake smiles like so easily. And it's interesting. It also is a problem for people like some people who smile too much and it ruins their effectiveness. So they make a powerful statement while smiling. It just <laughs> it disqualifies them. It's like, all right, like that statement didn't need a smile. Right. But that's part of like where they're coming from and how they want to be perceived and how they wanna come across they want to be liked or want to be well received or loved or whatever it is and the smile is their method for doing that do you see that in public speaking a lot like kind of a miscued smile with the message oh yeah i mean public speaking is an interesting such an interesting vertical and such an interesting area of communication just because it's the only area of communication that sort of sits on itself in the sense that i've seen people that could work a room but they're terrified of public speaking and all it is is a freaking conversation with 100 people or a thousand people instead of one but um, it's difficult for a lot of people. And, you know, I have, very, I have very stylistic opinions about what a presentation is and what isn't. And I think that you need to be willing to like accept my style of approach. And my style of approach is more of like a, a, a Gary Vaynerchuk, Vaynerchuk like style, like just real and authentic. Yeah. I don't like any of the hand postures where it's like, okay, so today... And like then clasping yeah, them in front of your chest. Yeah. yeah. And then sometimes some of these presentations, I, like I've seen certain people, like they're in a suit and they're so perfect. Every word is perfect. <laughs> and the way they deliver it and that story was so well crafted. And it's like, today I am going to check. Like I do, it doesn't work for me. Too much. It's too much. And it doesn't, it doesn't provoke a feeling of, all right, like I want to listen, I want to follow. So, but you got to be on board. Like I've, I've worked with certain companies and I'm like, guys, like this doesn't work. And they're like, we're not, on, we're not willing to change. I'm like, fine. So this is not going to, this is not going to work. And I used to be like, we're doing it my way or nothing. And just people have their own style. And, and at the end of the day, like our whole thing is effectiveness. That That's where everything comes from. It's not about whether I like something or not, whether I think you're good or not. It's merely effectiveness. So if you're giving a presentation and 50% of the people are on the phone, you're not effective. That's it. You need to change something because of that. Now we can go a lot of different paths, a lot of different ways. That's why even presentation coaching is fundamentally flawed because what do they do? The one person watches you and gives you feedback. The reality is the audience is the people that should be giving you feedback. And that's why we like to record the person on stage and the entire room to actually measure who's effective or who's not effective. 
so we kind of have a, especially in New York, like a cultural shift with plastic surgery, Botox, mm-hmm. fillers, where you're actually taking people's facial expressions away by yeah. <laughs> uh, paralyzing the muscles with Botox. What do you like? What do you think of that as a culture? Like the effect, maybe long term on a culture. So I've worked with clients that have Botox before, and what was interesting is like I you can tell sometimes, right? Like so you can just you just know. Yeah. And I think think technology has advanced a lot now. So like people like there's been I was talking to my girlfriend about this recently. There's been like a shift now where the trend back in the day used to be like you know, like that fakeness. Now it's every, everything's like youthful. Like mm. everybody wants to look natural natural and youthful. Like yeah. that's kind of the pull. So they've, they've adjusted some of the types of Botox and stuff like that. Uh, I personally don't think it's like worth it from a communications perspective. I literally was just having a conversation with my girlfriend about this. Um, <laughs> She I, doesn't need it. <laughs> no, but she'll do, she'll say preventative, preventative, maybe. I'll be like, nope, no, never, can't ever on. do it. You're beautiful. I can't take it. Yeah. But, you know, it's, it can cause problems. Yeah. It could definitely cause problems of communication. I think that doctors, because I was literally just having a, it's funny you asked this. I was having a conversation with a dermatologist the other day about this. And I think they've gotten a lot better at the way they apply it. So like- A little then, light, more light-handed. Uh-huh, a <laughs> little bit more light-handed, a little bit more- and this is the reality is like, sometimes I'll meet people that like, for whatever reason, if they get their injection every two years, like that makes, that gives them enough personal whatever to allow them to be more effective. And it's like, all right, if we look at that risk versus reward thing, I'm like, yeah, okay. Like the, it's up to you. I, I personally just, I would never do something like that. I'm always curious of like the people who do it, you know, and maybe are a little more heavy handed and then have kids and their kids are like trying to read, like read mommy yeah, that could be a or daddy <laughs> and just, you know, growing as a family unit and not being able to get the full expression because it's not expressed. And then how is that interpreted as like, you know, the younger, the younger kids? I don't know. Definitely. I think de- about that. Definitely. I think in the extreme examples, definitely developmental stuff because kids are wired. I mean, like babies are wired to read faces, yeah. right? Like they spend more time looking at an object that has two dots and a smile beneath it than it does in the in reverse. And it's a part of communication. And also a lot of people, like I can look at someone and tell you that the reason they're anxious is because of elevated blink rate, because of their smile tension, because of the blah, 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 blah. Most people just look at you and they process it immediately. It's like a gut feeling. A gut feeling, a yeah. gut interaction. And we have these mechanisms. The thing I was saying the other day, if somebody walks down the street right now with a knife and a really angry look on their face of intensity in a, a second, you look at that and you can process what's going on. But you could sometimes go on a date with someone and the person across from you can be madly in love with you, but they can't process that. Hmm. Like what's the different context? Well, one's survival and one's not. Like, so that's sort of how things have have shifted. And you know, once you get gain access to it, it's a lot easier to navigate social interactions. But yeah, no, the, the Botox thing, I actually spoke to editors at Bravo. And one of them was telling me, I don't remember who it was, but they were trying to find like facial cuts of people being reactive. And one woman had so much Botox that <laughs> she never reacted. The top half of her face didn't didn't move. <laughs> and it was like, and they were telling me like, what's the problem? Like we it's couldn't. And, and then he was saying that she had the most problem connecting with others. Interesting. The, the amount of the upper half of the face emotes a lot. Like you'll find that in very, like find me an expressive, charismatic person that you like to watch. that doesn't move the top half of their face. You won't. They all have a lot of animation in the top half of their face. Why? Because the brain loves movement. 
So we pay attention to things. And when the face is moving and people are animated and their vocal patterns are going up and down, like you, you pay attention to it. And when you remove some of that, you, you lose your, you lose your effectiveness. I've also worked with people that had like Bell's palsy yeah, so and like had facial paral yeah. paralysis and had to rebuild that. And their smile is sort of like crooked. Yeah. It's hard to explain. And, yeah. and that took some work to sort of help them have a more of an effective way of communicating. I've also dealt with people that one of my clients, um, I don't know how to say it. It's like Trica, it has a long term, but it's basically like certain antipsychotics have like a 1% prevalence rate of this involuntary facial sort of gestures. Mm. So like- Like a tick? It's like, it's more extreme than a tick. Like it's like like a Tourette's. Yeah, okay. like it's that. And I think he was on like some sort of MOI, something to block it and it wasn't working. And then we had to come up with like a strategy for dealing with that. Cause he would do it every once in a while. And, and honestly, you, you just, you can't walk around and make these weird facial expressions and then not explain it to the other person. Cause the other person's in their head thinking what, what was happening. So we had to create like strategies and like ways of communicating it. And he, he gained a lot of power after explaining like that whole situation. Wouldn't it just literally be like, Hey, I have this tick. That's kind of what he did. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the problem was, it's so funny. Cause like he, he told us, he didn't want to tell people it was a side effect of medication, but a doctor friend was in a class with him and he told the story and the doctor friend said to me, oh, something was, something was up with that. And it, and I laughed so hard because I was like, wow, you're the only one that understands the context yeah. to be able to sort that out. Most people aren't going to, they're just going to yeah. be like, all right. What do you see in the high performers? So for example, the Navy SEALs mm -hmm. or people that are under pressure and have to perform, do they have certain habits or traits or body language tendencies that people that are not in those positions yeah. don't have as much? Yeah. Yeah. The, I mean, the, if you want to look at the general movement of anybody that has a high level of confidence or is an extreme performer, it's usually what I call A to B movement. So like most people don't move through life from A to B. They go to like A to A.1 to A.2, A.3. So if like, for example... <laughs> If I had to walk to that computer right now, yeah. I could be like, is it okay if I, and like slowly take off my headphones and like creep over, or I could just get off and walk to the computer. Right. You see a lot of movement like that. And it doesn't need to be like, I think there is a, especially on the Northeastern side of our culture, New York in this area, it's like, you have to be aggressive. You have to be straight. Like that's power. There's also like a softer level of power and a softer level of control. And they have the same thing though. They move like A to B, but it's just- it's slower and more deliberate than just like aggressive. Can you give an example of like the softer so, power? So like the softer power is the difference between like weakness and softer power is let's say a room full of oh, this, this one woman executive that I worked with that was just, she was just savage level of power. Like you know, savage. savage level of power. Ruthless. I remember, I remember <laughs> sitting there in a room and like we had 13, 13 people were having a conversation. The room was loud and she literally just like sh shifted her chair and she was like, can we start? And the whole room was like, boom, just quiet. Wow. And like ready. And I was like, wow. And the way she did it, she didn't go like, excuse me, like, can we, can we start? Like guys, let's go. And she just said powerfully in a soft voice, like, can we start? And it was like, boom. And that was like an example where I might be like, all right, everyone shut up. Cause that's my style, right? Like <laughs> right. that's my style of communication. And everybody has their own style and you don't need to think certain styles fit certain things, right? So like when you walk into, um, like for example, there's a, uh, a performance coach named Elliot Rowe that works with like a lot of world-class poker players. And 
Elliot energy wise is probably like the opposite of me. Like I'm like aggressive and straightforward and Elliot is just like very relaxed and he's very calm. But that's what you want in those moments where you're really tense. And I always make a joke where I'm like, I could get on the phone with Elliot and be like, hey man, like I killed, I had killed 25 people last night. I don't know what to do. <laughs> and Elliot would be like, okay, so let's take a, like he, he always is that rock right. of like a powerful <laughs> level of calm. <laughs> right. And that is really good for what he does, you know? So it, it fits its context. And there's different styles of leadership that demand certain styles of communication. Some work, some don't work. Some work, but everybody hates you, but your company's doing really well. Some, everybody loves you, but your company's not doing so well. Some you're not taken seriously, some you are. Like, it's a spectrum of how you're actually interacting with people. And it's all about what you choose. So you get to decide what kind of leader, what kind of person, what kind of you are. I can dictate that. Like if you want to make your company fear you, you teach strategies for that. I don't think it's the most effective thing. It's not something I would do, but oh yeah, there's ways of dealing with that. Subtle ways of answering people, subtle statements that, that could all be engineered. What would be a more effective leadership style? I, I come from the approach of just, mine is so open uh, for my style. Like transparency. Transparency, so open, like, like um, I want to be the first person they call when anybody that works for me has a problem. I want to be able to deal it. But some pe- some executives that run 2,000, 3,000 people company, they can't do that. Like I'm a small team. I have the luxury of doing that. As I grow, that will have to sort of move. I, I think just fostering a, a community where everybody's on the same page and everybody's grounded to the same principles. So, you know, like when it's you- like w- Ray Dalio, like principles, like there's like overly- um- yeah, yeah. Over yeah. feedback or like, a plethora of feedback. Well, like honestly, so my company would make Bridgewater look good. Like that's like if you want to talk about <laughs> transparency and stuff, he, they they record certain things. We we're recording everything on video. Yeah. So like yeah. when we build a facility and we have that, like everybody will be recorded because that's what we teach. Like that's part of our alignment. But like I've worked with organizations that you know they say they're about like uh, integrity and positivity and whatever it is, and it's not like that at all. Like if they just have the things on the wall. And then I've seen companies that, that really embody it and it's incredible. And like, you can see that every single communication somehow has one of those three things in it. And I think that's one of the most powerful things is getting people on board. That's not easy to do, but getting people on board with that is, you know, really effective. And just as a, as a leader myself, like I was, I was going in working with like really big companies and really big exec and, doing amazing work. I was horrible in my own team. Like absolutely, <laughs> absolutely horrible. Hmm. Like just, you know, I had this concept that I'll, I'll get it done myself. Oh yeah, that's tricky. I don't need anybody else. I got this. It's kind of like my thing that I do over and over again. And, um, you know, it only took some like recent, not so recent, but outside evaluation to be like, wow, I need to work on this stuff myself, you know? And one of the biggest pieces of it, you can never be your own coach. That's like the most dangerous thing. Like if you're at a high level in anything that you do, don't think you can coach yourself in that area. You need outside out evaluation. Uh, and that's always might been my thing. I look for people that have like talent in their areas and like, you're my person. Like if I have pain, I send people to, or if I have pain, like go to Emily. Uh, and then you find that and it's just way more effective. So being a business owner, yeah. I mean, we have lots of business owners that listen to the podcast. When you are working with your team and you feel a disconnect, like kind of like the the glaze mm-hmm. happening. And you want to be like, no, 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 stay with me. This is really important. Yeah. Like what would be a strategy for that? So first of all, like in, uh, with everybody that, everybody that works for me at this point is family. So we're, we're, we're that close. 
So in my thing, it's like, what the f like, <laughs> you know, that's kind of the, cause it, it, there's this really cool thing called unconditional positive regard. It's, it's created out of a, wow, humanistic psychology, I, th I think Carl Rogers. And it's basically the love that like a mother has for their child. Like no matter what their child does, like they'll always love their child. And yeah. one of the worthwhile goals of a relationship is to reach unconditional positive regard. So I could say something and then all of a sudden I know that that person wouldn't sort of leave and run away. I think it's very important to establish that sometimes in, in your culture. So like no matter what happens, like I don't, I feel like everybody, we all have unconditional positive regard with each other and that's all established. So I, I'm very big about calling out anything possible. So if I see someone's upset, I deal with it right then and there. If I see that somebody's frustrated, I have a conversation. Like I try as much as possible to do that. And now we're remote. So we used to all work with each other, but now we're remote. But I think it's very important that we had that foundation of yeah. it. Also, one of the things I'm doing for nonverbal group going into 2018 is I, I'm doing these, uh, these sheets, these agreement sheets. So essentially when everybody starts to work with me, I have like what you can expect from me and then what I can expect from you. And I want to review them every quarter. So like what you can expect from me, like I'll always be there for you. Like no matter what happens, I will be there for you. Number two, you know, um, expect me to not communicate the best on Slack. Like, and <laughs> you know what I mean? Okay. Expect me to sometimes say things that are not so detailed. So you might have to call back and be like, Blake, like what exactly do you need here? Like sort of giving them what it's going to be like to work with me. And then what I expect from them. Like I expect you to do this, 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 this. Because a lot of the problems that come aroused from in my own life and in a lot of companies is just a, a miscommunication around expectations. So the expectations weren't managed. You said that I was going to get, once we made $2 million, that I was going to become the CFO of the company. When did I say that? You know, I've seen that cause so many problems in companies. And most people, if they just had a simple, if they reviewed the agreement every couple of months, everybody's on the same page and there's no, there's no confusion. And that's very different than job description. Yeah. Uh, operating procedures, mm -hmm. standards. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's different. It's, you know, it's really interesting how some companies, like I went to Shake Shack the other day, like four weeks ago in Madison Square Park and the woman behind the counter, like I would have hired right then and there. Like she was, wow. she was delivering burgers and probably making like, I don't know, 14, 15, 16 an hour. But her, her energy, her communication, her diligence was incredible. Like, and I was just like, wow. Like, and it was so interesting. Like, how is that created at Shake Shack? Like, what are they doing to have someone like that in there? And you see this, like, Lululemon's an example. Everybody's so friendly, too, almost too friendly when I go in there. <laughs> I'm like, like, I'm just, I'm just walking me. around, like, I'm good. <laughs> you know, like, how do they, how do they do that? And it's, yeah. to do that at scale is very, very, very interesting. And also, I don't like to speak about things that I'm not personally good at. So like, I don't have leadership frameworks now for above 20. Why? Because most of the stuff that I've done dealt with is less than 20. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Even, even executive teams, they're not a thousand executives. It's they have to go delegate someone else. So our whole thing is like, all right, like let's do studies. Let's get in there, start recording interactions. And that's, I become, the, I do the work in order to understand what actually needs to be said. And, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. 
Where can people find you? Nonverbalgroup.com is pretty much out of commission for a little bit, but not- <laughs> So it, not there. <laughs> no, nonverbalgroup.com will have some links in a couple of weeks that I'll, I'll be doing stuff. So I have this thing called the behavioral bulletin. And every week I'm going to send out some sort of nonverbal insight from around the world. And that'll be on nonverbalgroup.com by the time this is out. Social? Blake Eastman, I think. See, I've been, listen, I've been, I've been hiding. <laughs> Which is more out. like your travels, like yeah. Blake's on a beach. Yeah, I'm Blake's just somewhere. <laughs> I've been hiding out to some respect. Uh, I've not been super public. I've not been super out there. I've been focusing on our research, on our work and sort of doing nonverbal group the, the right way. So, uh, any reason why is it just kind of like how life took you or the conscious? The past, the past five years has been rough. Um, I, I'm the kind of person that has been working 16 to 18 hours every day. Like I announced to a room full of high performers that I was so proud of myself that I'm only working 12 hour days. And the whole room looked at me like, are you crazy? And I was like, <laughs> wait, something's wrong. Like, and I just, I, like I went into, you know, building my business wasn't the perfect you know, shot up story. Yeah. Like I put myself through a lot of personal hell. I put the people around me through hell. Like, I, <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I did. And the reality is though, I really believe that you only learn sometimes from being in hell. Like, and the journey has changed me as a person. And I don't think I was ready to build the organization, the nonverbal group five years ago. Like I was still a kid uh, in some respects. And I'm always have that mentality that I'm still a kid, but I've definitely grown a lot over the past five, six years. So now I'm sort of like ready to build in the framework, build in the foundations and then start to rev it up. Awesome. I can't yeah. wait to No, it'll be interesting. Thank you so much. It's yeah, always of course. fun to be with you. That's a wrap. I have two truths that I fully believe in. First, to be 1% better every single day. And second, all feedback is good feedback because it helps us grow. Why do I say this? If you're enjoying these conversations and you find this is adding value, send us some love by subscribing to Muscle Medicine Podcast on iTunes. And if you want to share your voice with the world and scream it from the rooftops and tell your friends, or you can just give us a little feedback so we can grow by rating and reviewing Muscle Medicine on iTunes. Thank you guys. So much gratitude. Dr. Emily Kybert here.